What's up, everybody? This week on LibUX, a podcast about design, development, and user experience for libraries and the higher ed web. Um, Amanda and I are joined by Chad Hafley, who you can find at hiddenpeanuts.com, um, who just wrote about our favorite topic. We make no bones about being WordPress evangelists. Amanda has even written a book about WordPress, too, I'm the only one here who hasn't written a book about WordPress. Shame. <laughs> Yet. Yet. <laughs> it's coming. <laughs> Chad, thanks for uh, joining us. We really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for the opportunity. So you just, your book just was published um, a couple days ago, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's hard to nail down an exact date when it came off the presses, but <laughs> my copies arrived uh, last Thursday, I think. So yeah, it's as new as it will get. You want to tell us about it? Yeah, so the book is called WordPress for Libraries. It's part of a really cool series, Library Technology Essentials. Um, you may remember the Library Tech Set book series that came out a few years ago. Yes. Uh, the same editors behind it got together a bunch of, um, I like to count myself as a smart person, but at least 11 other smart people who wrote titles for the books on things like Makerspaces, Free Technology for Libraries, um, and I was asked to do WordPress for Libraries. And we um, at work, the the major website I work with moved to WordPress a couple years ago, and I've been using WordPress myself for my own blog for what seems like an ungodly long time now. Uh, I think it's about a little over 10 years. Um, so it w- it's changed a lot over that time. But yeah, it's a book aimed at beginners for, of WordPress. Uh, it walks you through everything from picking a host to what WordPress is and how it works to what some popular plugins and themes are, how to configure them, and how to do some stuff specific to libraries that help make uh, managing the content easier. I think this is a big deal. One of the things that Amanda and I were talking about you know, when we started the podcast a year ago or so was that especially in higher ed, libraries, uh, I guess Drupal has been sort of the, the CMS of choice for many of them, you know, and in fact, you know, when you look at um, library web services positions, a lot of that is familiarity with things like Drupal 6, Drupal 7. The, it seems, though, that in the last few years, especially, you know, since, um, since I took my library job, that WordPress has become increasingly popular. And in fact, there's this uh, open source, there's this um, online conference that I'm going to be a part of um, next month about open source technologies in libraries. And I'm I'm actually going to be making the argument that WordPress may be, for many, potentially one of the most important open source tools that you can adopt and invest in. That I guess there's this idea that we've all struggled with as WordPress devs. Um, that WordPress is for blogs, right? Or that WordPress has a very specific look, you know, uh, three-quarters main content with a sidebar of widgets and blog roles and things like that. But the reality is that with, you know, enough elbow grease, you can really explode the, the tool into a really powerful core content management system that um, maybe even paired with certain APIs can power really advanced library applications. 
Yeah, my secret shame, I was very skeptical of WordPress running large library websites. You know, I'd, like you said, I'd used it as a blog for probably seven or eight years at that point. And I was like, really? We're going to use WordPress? Um, but it won me over really quickly. It's, uh, it's matured. It's, it's a great tool now. Do you have familiarity? Like, were you more of a Drupal person before that, or...? I have dabbled in Drupal, but I would not call myself anything approaching an expert. Um, WordPress was the, the only content management system I'd used extensively. Uh, everything else had been straight HTML for the most part. I guess that's sort of where I've been. Um, Amanda, you're on a Drupal library, though, right? Yes. But uh, WordPress was definitely my first, and then I only picked up Drupal because of a graduate project that I had to work on as the... Um, to build them a website. I needed something with views, but which WordPress is, uh, <laughs> it, it, it's not quite built in like it is in Drupal, uh, making sorting content very nice. Um, For the lay folks, explain what a view is. <laughs> yeah, this is where I kind of think of it as like in-page database filter sorting. So if I want to find out all the articles on this website that are have the word book but are written by Amanda. If I have the setup right, it would be able to pull it for me really nicely. Um, I guess that'd be my rough explanation. But there's way more to it than that. And I think WordPress is moving even more in that direction in the next couple of versions. They, I've heard they plan on fleshing out the API even more, and you'll be able to do a lot of... Um, kind of more munging of the stuff yourself and getting better views out of it. Have you had much experience with the WP API, or do you know enough about it to explain it? Not in-depth, I wouldn't say. Uh, I consider myself to be conversant but not fluent in that kind of thing. That's why I work with wonderful developers who uh, can can translate more of my UX side into, um, into execution, and I maintain it going forward. The WP API is this, right now it's a plugin that you can install on WordPress and what it does is expose the content and kind of everything associated with it, the, the users, all of the metadata associated with that content. Basically it exposes everything that you have as part of your WordPress site through a JSON API, which just means for those who don't really care that much that outside applications can suddenly ingest it and do things with that data. Traditionally, WordPress has this structure where you have a database and through PHP, you have a nice, a very nice user-friendly content management system for people to write content into that database. And then the PHP also presents the the view of that, the aesthetic, the template, and that's the WordPress theme. But with the API, you no longer have to be part of that um, silo. You can expose that content kind of everywhere, and that's sort of a big deal. The really big thing with the WP API, and then I'll leave off of it unless you guys have extra comments, is that it is on the track to move into core, which means that potentially in the near future, when the big thing is that basically when somebody updates their flavor of WordPress because there's a new update pushed by the WordPress team, it will include the API, which will suddenly make this, um, this content management system, which is behind a huge percentage of all web content, 23%, 
it will suddenly make that scalable and exposed to outside applications. Yeah, one of the cooler things I ran into when I was writing the book, I talked to the Durham County Public Library here in North Carolina, and they use WordPress for their traditional website, but they also use it to run their summer reading program. And they created this whole elaborate system where you know you log in and get an account and keep track of the points you've earned for based on your reading, can redeem it for prizes, and all kinds of really cool stuff. And that's just like the tip of the iceberg when it when it comes to what the API will let you do. I think. Does that have anything to do with the Teen Summer Challenge website, which um, was developed out west? Do you think? I don't know. That's a good question. They didn't refer to it when I talked to them. Hmm. Yeah, that one is one of my favorites and. Someday, when I have time, I would love to do that for my library instead of us using this one vendor product, which uh, is difficult for me to customize. I think that, sen that sentence is somewhat universal. Bouncing off that, chat, I was looking at your book write-up, and you were mentioning um, able to build an exhibit to display an image collection. Since mm -hmm. I haven't seen your book yet, because it's so brand new, um, does that relate in some way to something like Omeka, like a difference, a challenge to that? It's definitely more simple than Omeka. Uh, you know, like anything, if you put enough development time into WordPress, you could probably make it work at the level Omeka does. But if if you're really serious about image collections, you probably want to look at a more specialized tool like Omeka, to be honest. Uh, but at the low end, you can, if you have limited developers, if you've got limited server resources, etc., even the built-in galleries in WordPress have progressed to a point where they're pretty robust, and you can do neat things with that, even without dipping in your toes into the plugin world, which will get you a little bit closer to the, the Omeka end of the spectrum. Yeah, I was working with a patron today, and because, you know, you can do some image cropping in WordPress, but, or, and resizing a little bit, but I told her, you know, you really should just pull all these out and resize them as you need to, and then re-upload them to WordPress, since I find that a little bit iffy, and how it does yeah, that. Yeah, media is not WordPress's strong point, in my opinion. A lot of times, especially on Twitter, you make sure to um, talk about a lot of the, like, the user experience stuff that you do, the use of tools like Optimal Workshop, which I think is like fundamental. Can you explain a little yeah. bit more about like what you're, what you're doing with this? OptimalWorkshop.com is a, a really nice company out of New Zealand that makes um, tools you can do to, use to do really simple user experience kind of focus tests. Um, I should have looked this up in advance, but I'm see if I can do it off the top of my head. No, they have okay. a tool called Chalkmark, which is like first-click testing. You present in a screenshot to someone and ask them a question. Like we've we've used it for um, showing them a picture of the homepage and saying, "Now, where would you click to search for a book?" That is get... new. Um, like last time, I you know I've used Optimal Workshop for card sorting, and then I'll I didn't mean to interrupt, but that's a, that's a really new tool. Also, they, it looks like they just launched this reframer. Uh, tool, which is presently in beta. Yeah, that one I'm having some trouble wrapping my head around, <laughs> to be honest. <laughs> it's kind of a, I think it's to keep track of the more um, qualitative observations you might make during a user experience tests or usability test of, of some sort, um, but I haven't quite do dove into dived into that one as much. The, um, the first click testing stuff is what we've used the most, just because it's so easy to push out a test, and we, you get really neat insights, like you will ask them a demographic question along with that, and then you can filter the results based on the demographic. So we can say, hey, look, undergrads use the site differently than faculty do, and, and things like that, which gives us some nice you know, heat map style visual evidence to back up a lot of stuff. Um, now, I think a couple of those are available kind of freemium, right? There's, a, there's sort of a free pricing, but it looks like, yeah. it looks like to really um, 
squeeze the most out of it. There is a cost to it, and it looks fairly substantial, to be honest. A hundred dollars a month. There's, they do have an educational pricing plan. Um, let's see if I can find that. I, I'm really interested in how your team decided to decided to pursue paying for this tool. I, I think there's a lot of a lot of us in a situation where, okay, we are able to talk about user experience design with a certain level of vocabulary. We are, able, we are able to articulate its value, its value to the library's mission. But many of us are still in a position where there's not quite a, there may not be like a UX department. There may not even be a web department. There, um, there certainly is not much, if any, budget allocated to tools like this mm-hmm. or something like Crazy Egg. Um, can do you have any insight or advice for how maybe you pitched this? Or I'd just be interested in hearing a little bit about that story. Sure. So I first learned of the existence of Optimal Workshop, Workshop at the wonderful EDUI conference, which as a side note is great for people in our field. Uh, but they were there as a vendor and a couple came up in a couple of conference presentations while I was there. And then I got lucky and I won a year subscription to it at the conference. <laughs> so, oh, awesome. so I didn't quite have that same barrier to entry that maybe a lot of people do. But through that first year, we were able to prove its value enough uh, through work that then we were able to get ongoing funding allocated for it. But you mentioned the the freemium model earlier, and I really think you can do good tests with their free model too. I think you can have unlimited tests and up to 10 users per test or something along those lines. Don't quote me on it. But you can do, especially if you are uh, have no other way to do testing, I still think it's it's a decent tool at the free level too. So how often do you perform these studies? Is it is it just kind of perpetual, and like how do you structure them? Mm-hmm. It's not scheduled. Like there's not a calendar I can point to and say here's when the next one will be. It's kind of as needs arise, but we also don't want to bombard our users with with too much stuff. Uh, I think we on average do I would say maybe two tests a semester is how it works out, and maybe one more in the summer. So four to five a year is probably what we do. Rebecca Blackiston, who is kind of a pillar in our niche, she um, is a uh, she's from the University of Arizona, and she recently she recently solicited candid comments about how libraries have created user experience teams, what their structure may be, like how they interface with that. other departments. There, yeah, I mean, I'm just kind of interested in any of your insights from there. Sure. So I'm part of a small department. We have three full-time staff and I think three, yeah, three grad students also. That fluctuates a little bit throughout the, the academic cycle. But we've only existed as a department for the last, I think, three years and change. Just about three years ago now is when we were formed. I was originally hired as part of uh, what was then known as the reference department as a subject librarian. But my title was Emerging Technologies Librarian, so there was kind of a technology angle to it. There were a lot of structural changes internally, and I didn't quite fit with that department anymore, and there were a couple other people in different departments who also had been orphaned in a way uh, that the, the mission of their department wasn't necessarily making the best use of their skills. So we all got together and brainstormed up a mission statement for what we thought a, a user experience department should be and, and convinced admin to, to give, us the, give us their blessing. Nice. So we kind yeah. of fell into it backwards. Ah, yeah, I don't know much about how my library did it, except um, we've been in existence, I think, for about seven years now. And I was hired on directly to be the UX librarian. So my experience is a little different, and then, Michael, you don't work in a UX department by name. 
Right. Amanda, do you have developers as part of your department? Uh, we hired a system admin who also does some development work. <laughs> and then my boss, um, he does a lot of the heavy lifting as well. Yeah, but it's one of those awkward things where I wish I knew more, but my brain is not actually structured for that, I don't think. <laughs> I, I share that. I see that you also talk about some chunking content in your book, um, short codes. And mm -hmm. I am all about content strategy, but I find that it's very difficult because I freelance with very tiny libraries, especially ones who is only one person open 20 hours a week. Um, and sometimes it can be difficult to explain like why I need to spend extra time making that um, available to them you know, by breaking it up into very detailed parts. Um, does your book like talk a little bit about the, like, not without spoiling your book, but can you frame it a little <laughs> for me? Yeah, wouldn't want to spoil that last chapter twist. But yes, short codes are my favorite kind of unsung feature of WordPress, I think. I mean, it's a feature that's built into it out of the box, but you've got to know a little PHP to get to it without a plugin in there. And adding any number of the shortcut, any one of the shortcode plugins that are out there, I think makes it a lot easier to get to. And if you're not familiar with shortcodes, it lets you take a chunk of content and reuse it around your site. So we use it for things like our building usage policies. We've got a bunch of branch libraries with very similar policies. So we can type in those policies once, put the shortcode on every page where we want those policies to appear, and then they show up. If we need to change those policies, we just change them in one central place and it cascades out to all of the different branch policy pages which is really, really nice. I mean, it, it puts the content management in content management system in a lot of ways. So libraries often have this uh, kind of um, uh, multiple multiple products uh, syndrome where they have several third-party web applications or, you know, provided by vendors. Where does, like, like how do you, hmm, where does something like a, like a WordPress, a library WordPress site sit with, sit with or alongside libguides or one of those tools? I think that's going to vary wildly depending on um, each library's access to development resources in particular. I've, I can't think of an example off the top of my head, but I know I've seen places that use WordPress very much like libguides to manage all their subject guides and that kind of thing. And at a basic level, you can do it with all the built-in tools. Uh, but I, th I think if you can put a little custom development into it, getting those um, advanced custom fields kind of stuff in there to um, to help out with the construction and maintenance of the pages would go a long way. So I think I mentioned earlier, WordPress can do anything if, you, if you've got the resources to throw at it. But if you don't have those resources to throw at, throw at it, it can also integrate nicely with other stuff. Is there anything else that you want to add or any, any topic you want to... Um, like of interest that you just want to chat about for a little bit. Uh, well, you brought up short codes already. That was the one thing I was I was hoping would pop up because that's I see a lot of people use WordPress who don't know that short codes exist, and it kind of changed my life at, at work once we figured that out. It made it so much easier when we were going through our our pre WordPress site, um, looking at the untold thousands of HTML files that I still flash back to and have nightmares. Um, you know, we'd find outdated content, inconsistent content across pages. It was just terrible. And like that, that was our one thing. Like we do not want to end, back, end up back in that place again. And it, the shortcodes provided a, a really neat opportunity to um, head off the worst of that, hopefully. Knock on wood. To be honest, I was a little surprised that the learning curve for 
you know, my colleagues who have maybe never been in a WordPress environment before was really quite steep. Do you think that would have been the same in any content management system, or are there issues unique to WordPress? Well, no, I think, um, I think there would certainly be a learning curve. I do feel like, you know, maybe it's biased talking, but out of the box anyway, I feel like the learning curve for something like Drupal would be greater, but I didn't, I didn't anticipate the, the degree of unfamiliarity and, and kind of a, um, the, the hurdle to learn that there just was for WordPress. And the big thing was that um, I, keep on, I keep on comparing to LibGuides, but when LibGuides version 2 dropped, um, they allowed for, I guess, I guess LibGuides 1 was like this too, where that basically the back end was um, with its with its system of boxes and columns was m- very much a mirror of what the front end looked like. Maybe the front end, the, the public view of that libguide had a few extra bill- bells and whistles. But for WordPress, the, the, the back end and the front end are very separate. It's pretty much a word processor in the back end, and depending on the theme that you've chosen or you've built, there's a front end there. And I think it was hard for... Um, colleagues to visualize what their content was going to look like. Um, and one of the things that um, was part of the training and part of the and, and part of the customization of our CMS for like the specific needs was to divorce this idea of or divorce this idea of having control over what the content looks like. Um, and that was just a very foreign concept. Yeah, so, you know, Karen McGreen talks about this all the time about, you know, because of the, um, oh, it's been a while since I've thought about this, um, where your content is going to be everywhere on all types of different platforms, but I have seen my coworkers using Drupal, they'll hit that preview button and then they'll go look at it, and I'm just, like, kind of cringing, um, and some of them have learned a little bit of HTML, so they'll go stick things in there. Um, I tried to cut that off when I was first hired, but it accidentally broke some other things. I had to allow it for now. I also thought that, like, you know, and I, I sometimes refer to it, I also think that big blank WYSIWYG can be an impediment when you ask someone to, hey, go create content. Now, this is just a, you know, it, it, I guess it depends on the parameters of the of the content you're creating, but it's, um, I, I, we found it kind of paralyzing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we haven't run into that as much, if only because we don't create a lot of new content on the site, I think. It's more maintaining the existing stuff. We actively kind of discourage people from adding new pages um, to it, unless they can come up with a really good use case for why it has to be there. Oh, and, that's interesting. I'm, I'd be, I'm kind of interested in your uh, kind of like editorial rules and workflow. It's, it can be difficult because, you know, we don't have direct authority to tell them, like, no, you, you cannot do this. We have technical authority, but we don't. Don't you can't tell someone that you know that's not part of your job. You shouldn't be doing that. And because who am I to to judge what's relevant to a subject area that I don't know much about, for example? Um, but we we do run libguides in parallel with WordPress, and so we've set up really clear lines for like what is WordPress content, what is a we have two types of libguides. What is a course guide, a course page in libguides, and what is a subject guide in lib in libguides? And so we. Um, work with our subject librarians a lot to kind of nail down where this content should go. Um, 
both WordPress and LibGuides, we've set them up with their own kind of content review cycle that happens annually um, and, and helps, helps our librarians hopefully maintain the content. But by and large, the new content creation that we have goes on in LibGuides rather than in WordPress, I think. WordPress is more, um, I think of the right word, more about the libraries kind of stuff, directing people to, you know, all of the databases we subscribe to, directing them to interlibrary loan, uh, directing them to sign up for a consult or an instruction session, uh, that sort of thing. Whereas the more instructional content itself often lives in LibGuides, more of, you know, here's where the best psychology resources are, things like that are, are much more in LibGuides than WordPress. Do you find that through your usability testing that um, users are able to, to distinguish, I guess, meaningfully between these two um, backends? They don't care that much, <laughs> which I think anecdotally I can say. We've made some efforts, like uh, we definitely take our header out of WordPress and paste it into LibGuide, so try to get mm -hmm. some design consistency across them and things like that. So if all goes well, they may not, well, they probably notice they're on a different thing just because... It's, it's going to look fundamentally different. Um, but a lot of times our subject librarians will give out direct links to the guides in their area. So I think a lot of people, a lot of our students may actually bypass the library homepage entirely and go straight to the LibGuides for that kind of content. Yeah, well, that's a conversation we're having right now. So we're working on a new site. Um, and one of my colleagues, she's like, oh, yeah, everybody hits the front of the library website every time. And I was like, whoa, no, 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 no. People come at it from every direction. <laughs> yeah. So you have to be, like, consistent everywhere you go on this, um, you know, the same header. So people know that, yes, I am in my library's website, if possible. Mm -hmm. so, yeah, going back to the third-party vendor problem, that's not, not always possible, but it's nice when it is. Yeah. So I have a thing. I, as a public librarian, I have nailed it down so I can teach WordPress in an hour to my patrons using WordPress.com. Is your book written such that people should be like looking at it as they're working, or should they be reading it and then working? And I think it's a mix of the two. So in the early part of the book, there's a lot of, here's what WordPress is, here's how to choose between the .com and .org versions of WordPress, things like that. That's not something you'll want to be reading as you're making the decisions. You'll probably read it ahead of time, synthesize it a little bit, and then decide what path you want to go on. But uh, the bulk of the book, which is a lot of the, um, the project section, is very much how-to. It's very much step-by-step. -step. Here's where you get the plugin. Here's where you install. Here's what I recommend you go configure it to do. So in that, it's a kind of ABC following the steps as, as you're sitting at, at in the admin interface. What amount of tech skills are you expecting someone to have before they use your book to build a website? Not a lot, to be honest. I think some basic HTML familiarity and you know familiar with the idea of what is a server, things like that would, would be useful. But other than that, if, if you've done any web work at all, this, you would probably be able to get a, a WordPress site up and running very, very quickly with the book. Because WordPress is a web tool and giving the nature of the web to iterate and evolve extremely rapidly, how did you write something that would still be relevant in a year or two years, or do you guys have like a, a revisiting process? Let's say the WP API moves into core in like mm -hmm. three months. This may, a year from now, like WordPress 5.0, radically reshape what WordPress even looks like. 
Yeah, that's that's my nightmare as I was writing the book. Um, I kept thinking of uh, it was Gina Trapani wrote her How to Use Google Wave book, and, huh. you know, and then Google Wave was canceled. I think like more or less immediately after the book came out. Oh. And, and so I, yeah, and you know, to some degree, there's only so much you can do in in that planning process. But I like to think that uh, you know installing WordPress probably will not change. That that part will still be good, uh, even if something like the API comes to the forefront. I'll be sad that it's not in the book, uh, but I think you'll still find relevant stuff like plugins. And I tried to keep it, I don't want to say generic because that, that sounds bad, but I tried to keep it applicable as far as telling you, here's the kind of things you'll want to think about when you when you create your site. And, you know, five years from now, to be honest, if you're listening to this five years in 2020 <laughs> or whatever, you probably don't want to buy my book at that point. <laughs> You'll probably want to, want to look for something fresher. Look uh, for Chad's new book <laughs> and virtual reality. Yo, I'll, I'll start pitching that idea. WPVR. <laughs> right, hold on, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to trademark this right now. <laughs> yeah, go get that domain while you can. <laughs> don't encourage him. He has bought um, some weird ones. <laughs> I think we all have a few of those in our back pockets. Yeah. Brief tangent, and then we were going to totally let you go and be good hosts. Let's talk oh, wow. a little. No let's talk a little bit about Google Wave. <laughs> now that you brought it up, <laughs> the Google Wave for those of you who weren't around uh, on the internet. I don't know if it's old enough to be like something that like high school graduates may never have seen before, but that is um, it's, is, is it, whatever, let's not belabor it. So Google Wave is this, uh, it was kind of like, I guess it might be kind of what like Slack is now, where it's sort of an IRC on steroids, where it was this really neat, I don't even know how to describe it, it was like a persistent chat room, sort of. And you could respond to each other's comments in line. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. kind of like the old blogs, you could just like reply to this comment and it would just go underneath it in a threaded way. Oh. Yeah, you could jump back to a part of a conversation from months ago and reply to something directly. Yeah, that's what I don't like about Slack. Now, aqu- now acquired by Apache. Apache Wave is a software framework for real-time collaborative editing online. So it's kind of like Google Docs, editorially, and Slack. Kind of like all mushed into one, and I'm not going to lie. One of its like best features, which you know, I just regret that I must be part of such a small community um, to not keep it on Google's uh, on the Google development track, was that it was almost almost perfect for an online chat room based role playing game. <laughs> I may have explored that use case also. Because I believe it had, like, you, you could create bots and you could create dice. Um, how I use Google Wave? I was in graduate school at the time, and there was this cute boy in my class, and we would just talk to each other on Google Wave. <laughs> so we, we, we joked later saying that, hey, if anybody want to know how our romance developed, they just need to look at our Google Wave conversations because we just chatted with each other the whole time. <laughs> so now romance. they're gone. Yeah, it's gone forever. Well, I exported it. But. For for the record, Google was Google Wave was closed in 2010. Oh lord, I did not think it was that long ago. Oh, so by that, the way. Oh, go ahead. <laughs> I was sorry. I just gonna say that my spouse is poking around the corner here, like making a face at me now for outing him. 
<laughs> I think we all have stories about Google Wave that we'd rather keep in the closet. Oh, I like mine. <laughs> Chad, how can people stay in touch with you, keep up to date with what you're doing, give you money, support you how you need? <laughs> well, <laughs> I don't know about the latter, um, but they could definitely buy the book. That, that, would, that would help out. Uh, but my WordPress-powered blog is at hiddenpeanuts.com, and I tend to be that name in most places. You'll find me on Twitter as Hidden Peanuts. Uh, that uh, tends to be where I, I post the most about this kind of stuff. Not to undercut your profit, but you're currently running like a little... Uh, uh, campaign where folks can win a free copy of the book? Yes, thank you. I meant to mention that. Um, if you go to my blog, hiddenpeanuts.com, the first post there at the moment, or it might be the second or third post by the time you get there, um, is just leave a comment, and I'm giving away a copy of the book. I think I said you have to enter by about a week and a half from now. Okay, well, those of you who are listening in 2020 from... Uh... You're, you're out of luck. <laughs> <laughs> but Chad's latest book, WPVR... <laughs> Coming soon to, I probably can't say bookstores by that point. Oculus Rift version 2.